Sirs, moms, ladies and gents, welcome back to the Redco History Podcast, the place for people who love the history of the British Army and enjoy listening to a damn good tale of daring do. Today, we're looking at one of my favourite characters from British colonial history. I think you'll really enjoy it. Just one small note though, the audio here is lifted from my YouTube video, so there may be one or two references to images that sadly you can't see. But I've listened back and I don't think it detracts from the story in any way. Alright guys, enjoy it. My name is Bond. James Bond. James Bond. Adventurer. Spy. Shagger. We all know the movies, but did you know that British military history is littered with men whose lives make Bond look mundane? The name's Burns. Alexander Burns. Today, I'm talking about Alexander Bakara Burns, a man who had a short but adventure-packed life. He was a soldier in the East India Company's army, a linguist, an explorer, and a best-selling writer. He's even a character in the computer game Assassin's Creed and appears in that wonderful novel, Flashman. During Burns' short but dazzling career, he was at the forefront of the so-called Great Game in Central Asia, a game that eventually led to his bloody end on the streets of Kabul. Today's story is fascinating, complex, and bloody. Let's find out more about this man's incredible life. Burns, like many ballsy, hard-as-nails British officers of the Victorian era, was a Scot, born in Montrose in 1805. In 1821, at the tender age of 16, he was commissioned into the East India Company's army, posted to the 1st Battalion of the 3rd Regiment of Native Infantry. He took to the country and the people immediately, and you get a real sense of his attitude towards everything when you read his journal entries. He wrote, Ever since I ordered my servants to address me in Hindustani, I find my improvement very great, and I'm persuaded that there is no method more effectual in acquiring the language than the one I'm at present pursuing, for it unites the theoretical and the practical. Having migrated from my own country and being rather of a curious and searching disposition, I've begun to gain as much information concerning the manners, customs, laws and religions of this people, a study not only amusing and interesting, but highly instructive. This craving for knowledge saw him excel not only in Hindi, but also in Persian and Arabic. He soon found a niche as a translator and was transferred to what was known as the political branch. That was a branch of the colonial government that was chiefly concerned with helping to run the sort of semi-independent princely states. But the agents, as they were known, had quite a broad remit. It included spying, it included covert military operations and making maps. Good-looking, charming, confident, just like me, Burns was soon chosen for a very important mission. It was to deliver a gift of horses to this guy, the great Ranjit Singh of the Punjab. The horses weren't any old nags though. They were massive dray horses, the likes of which had never been seen before in India. But there was more to Burns' mission than simple diplomacy. The horses were to be transported along the Indus River, and that would give the British an opportunity to survey its course and to determine if it was navigable all the way to Ranjit's capital at Lahore something they had not had the opportunity to do before. Burns's mission was a huge success, and on the way he became the first European since Alexander the Great to navigate the entire length of the river as far as Lahore. The boats and the horses survived the journey. And to cap it all, Ranjit and our good friend Alexander Burns got on like a house on fire. It's said that the great Ranjit Singh enjoyed the high life, and from what we know about Burns, it seems unlikely that he himself abstained. Once back on British soil, Burns, 
now a favourite of the Governor-General, put forward an even more ambitious scheme. He wanted to travel into that terrifying and little-known region of Central Asia, Kabul and then Bukhara. Remember, in those days, travel to this region was incredibly difficult and dangerous, particularly for non-Muslims. But this area of the world was considered a key battleground in the Cold War with Russia that was soon to be known as the Great Game. Russia had been busy advancing its own empire, south, down through the Caucasus towards Iran, and now they had their eyes set on what we now think of as Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan and those areas. The British, whose own empire had reached as far as here, just by the Punjab, the famous five rivers, were terrified that if the Russians got as far as Afghanistan, they could use that as a route to invade British India, which was the most important part of Britain's empire. And so, as much to his surprise as anybody else's, Burns's expedition was approved, and at the start of 1832, our young hero set off into the mountains of Central Asia to win friends for the British, assess Russian influence, to survey the key trade routes, and to gather as much intelligence as possible about the region and its armies. But guys, before we get into that story, I just want to introduce today's sponsor, me. So as you can imagine, it's incredibly time consuming and cost me a lot of money to keep this channel going. So if there's any way you can help, that would be gratefully appreciated. The key things you can do, and none of these are gonna cost you a lot of money, is you can sign up for my mailing list over at redcoathistory.com. You just sign up, you get a monthly newsletter with links to all of my latest content. I think you'll really enjoy that. And as a bonus, you get a free book, my book, about the Anglo-Zulu War of 1879. You can also buy my books on amazon.com or .co.uk, whichever one you use. Just search for my name, Christian Parkinson. I think I get about 70% of the royalties from each sale, so that does help. And finally, if you check the description below this video, or if you're listening to the podcast, you'll find Amazon links to all the main sources that I've used, the books that I've used to research this. If you click on those and purchase via those links, I also get a small cut from Amazon. Again, costs you nothing, really helps the channel to grow. All right, guys, back to the video. Burns and his companions, Dr. James Gilbert Gerard, Mohan Lal and Muhammad Ali, donned turbans, local robes and swords, and crossed the Indus in March 1832. Whittle, replace your chin gear at once! This beard doesn't half itch. In my head, I'm, picture <laughs> I'm picturing this scene from Carry On at the Khyber. But in fairness, even Burns himself said that he didn't intend to pass himself off as a native. He just hoped not to draw too much attention to his small party of travellers, whose cover story was that they were journeying overland back home to England. Sensibly, they avoided the incredibly dangerous Khyber Pass and went via Jalalabad to Kabul. They travelled light, no tents and no signs of wealth that might make them targets for a robbery. As an aside, I was also lucky enough to travel along the Khyber Pass in 2006. Even now, as a foreigner, you can't just travel there without an armed escort. On his arrival in Kabul, Burns fell in love with the city. At the time, it was a fascinating place, still is, by no means fanatical in those days. In fact, another Western traveller noted that here Muslims would eat alongside Christians, which they wouldn't in many places, and there were even occasional mixed marriages with Armenians. Much of this spirit of tolerance seems to have been due to this man, Dost Mohammed, the king. By all accounts, an extremely modest and polite man, though also capable of violence when required. After all, he did rule over a large and diverse kingdom of warriors and raiders. Of course, him and Burns got along like a house on fire. They talked until the early hours, and Burns realised this was a man he could do business with, and so could the British. That feeling of respect was reciprocated, 
and Dost really seemed to like Burns. One of Burns' superpowers, and one I often try and emulate in my own travels, though I guess not as successfully as Burns, is his ability to get along with locals wherever he goes. Across India and Central Asia, he was able to make friends easily, and I think that was his combination of showing deference and respect, not just them as people, but also for their religion. For example, when asked if he ate pork, he pretended to shudder and said, it is only outcasts who commit such outrages. There was one area, though, that seems to have been his weak spot, his kryptonite, and we'll get to that later. Eventually, time came to leave the relative comfort of Kabul and head deeper into Asia towards Bukhara. It was the most dangerous leg of their journey, and the last Brits to try it had died during the trip. Burns and his party latched onto a caravan of well-armed traders who were going in the same direction. The risk of being picked up by local slavers was very high. On his arrival in June 1832, Burns was once again able to charm the man in charge, this time the Grand Vizier of Bukhara. The two were soon on good terms, and the Grand Vizier even asked Burns to return one day and bring him a pair of good English spectacles. It seems that Burns was lucky. The next two British explorers to visit the city were imprisoned and murdered by the Emir. It's a brutal story and one I may cover on this channel in the future. Burns and his party quickly returned to India where they were hailed as heroes. It had been a tremendous journey, an incredibly dangerous one, into an area where very few European Christians had been before. He'd proven himself to be a ballsy bugger, but a ballsy bugger who also had that incredibly important attribute of luck. And also, let's be fair, some toughness rolled in there. With the Russian threat growing by the day, Burns was immediately whisked off to Britain, met the king, was awarded the gold medal by the Royal Geographical Society, published a best-selling book and was given the nickname of Bakara Burns. Not bad for a junior officer who was still only in his 20s. His secret reports made it clear that if Kabul fell to the Russians, then India would be in grave peril. A modern army could, he said, get through the passes and attack the jewel in the British crown. Alarm bells were now ringing around the Foreign Office. It wasn't long before a bored Alexander was put back to work again and shipped off once more to Kabul. This time he was to be based in the city with an official job, that of opening up local trade to British commerce. But that wasn't his only task. Our young James Bond had an even more important role to play. He was also tasked with bullying his old friend Dost Mohammed into keeping the Ruskies out of Afghanistan, while also not doing anything to upset Dost's sworn enemy, Ranjit Singh, a man who the British did not want to upset in any way. In other words, the British expected Dost Mohammed to do as he was told, to tow the British line and expect nothing in return. This made Burns very uncomfortable and it would clearly not be a clever long-term strategy if they wanted to keep Dost on side. While there, just on time to terrify the British even more, a Russian agent arrived and began to sweet-talk the Afghan king. Interestingly, this Captain Vitkovich, the Russian agent, who was actually of Lithuanian blood, did meet Burns. I think it was the first day he arrived. And what I wouldn't have given to be a fly on the wall at that dinner meeting. Imagine these two agents meeting each other in a strange and hostile land. They had so much in common, but at the same time were enemies. Must have been an immense conversation. For Burns' seniors back in India, Vitkovich's arrival in Kabul was absolutely terrifying. They realised they needed to replace Dost Mohammed with someone more malleable. They had this man in mind, Shah Shuja. It's a bit of a tongue twister, that. He had been king of Afghanistan before, but had been overthrown and was now living in exile. Burns 
like many men of intelligence, did not hold Shah Shuja in high esteem, and he wasn't keen on the plan to overthrow Dost Mohammed. In fact, Burns was distraught at the fate that his bosses had in store for his old Afghan friend. But in fairness, his upset was short-lived because just before the British invasion of Afghanistan that was coming, he was promoted to Lieutenant Colonel and made a Knight Bachelor. What followed is now known as the First Anglo-Afghan War of 1839-1842. I don't plan to go into great detail about the war here, but despite a few early setbacks, it initially went to plan, thanks in no small part to Burns, who helped to pay off the aggressive local tribes and purchase food for the invading army. In July 1839, Kabul fell to the British, Dost Mohammed escaped and left for Bukhara, and Shah Shuja was put on the throne of Afghanistan with his thousands of followers and soldiers. What could possibly go wrong? Well, don't switch off, because you will find out in the next few minutes. Things just didn't go a bit wrong. They went terribly and horribly wrong. For now, Burns found himself as the British resident in the city. But he was outranked and ignored by superiors, leaving him with little to do except host lavish parties. He even wrote home that he was nothing but a highly paid idler at this time. We await your pleasure, masters. It's said that during this time he became one of many British soldiers who chased the local women. Men, we mustn't forget we came here with a definite objective. Historian John Kay wrote of these shenanigans. The Afghans are very jealous of the honour of their women, and there were things done in Kabul which covered them with shame and roused them to revenge. It went on until it became intolerable, and the injured then began to see that the only remedy was in their own hands. On top of this, Shah Shuja himself had proved very unpopular. Taxes and prices had gone up, and it was dawning on the locals that these pesky Christians might not actually be planning to leave. Burns and a small number of friends and colleagues were living in the old city, with just a small number of Indian sepoy soldiers to guard them. They were nowhere near the cantonments where the bulk of the British and East India Company soldiers were based. I don't know about you, alarm bells would be ringing in my head already. On the evening of the 1st of November 1841, Burns' trusty old friend Mohan Lal, the man who had travelled with him across Central Asia, came to visit him. Mohan Lal had his finger on the pulse of Afghani society and he warned Burns that there was going to be an attempt made on his life. Burns, like any good British soldier, took the news calmly. But he did make a mistake. He didn't believe that the crowd, the mob, would turn on him. He thought they loved him. And so he refused to leave his compound and move to the cantonments. Meanwhile, a mob was forming nearby. Their rage was stoked by a hard core of agitators, men who had been personally offended by Burns. I think reading between the lines, that meant the husbands of wives who had been to visit Burns. Soon the mob had surrounded the residents. It was easy to get the locals excited. Even those who weren't particularly angry at Burns or the British knew that next door was the treasury with a lot of money. If you get rid of Burns and his guards, the treasury is yours for the taking. As things began to get out of hand, Burns sent a note to the cantonments, to the headquarters, and asked for support to be sent. But General Elphinstone divvered and did nothing. Shah Shuja did send a regiment of his troops to try and intervene, but they got ambushed in the narrow alleyways nearby and were forced to retreat. Burns, an ambassador until the end, stood on his balcony and urged his guards not to fire. He tried to talk to the crowd, to persuade them that he was their friend, but it was too late. And so we enter the final act of our hero's life. 
Unlike our fictional hero James Bond, Burns had ran out of options and his look was at an end. The stables were set on fire, the guards overpowered and chaos engulfed the residency. Alexander's brother who was visiting him, Lieutenant Charles Burns, went out swinging, taking six of the Afghans with him, fighting until his last breath. The circumstances of Alexander's death are less clear and there are differing accounts. But it seems likely he donned a disguise and tried to disappear into the crowd, but it didn't work. He was recognised, the mob turned on him and chopped him to pieces. It was a sad end for a great man, aged only 36 years old. If only he'd listened to Mohanlal the night before and moved him and his men to the cantonments. If only General Elphinstone had acted quickly and sent reinforcements to the compound. But history is full of what-ifs and if-onlys. What we do know is that the attack on his compound was the beginning of a popular uprising against the British, one that ended in the disastrous retreat from Kabul, a sad and embarrassing affair that I've covered in previous episodes of the show. Do look that up. So there you have it, folks. A flawed but fascinating larger-than-life character, Alexander Burns. He should be remembered and respected, I believe, for generations to come. I hope you'll join me in raising a glass to the man. That's all for today. We will be on the march again soon, so subscribe and leave a comment. Thank you.